0: Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 4. This is a passage that really, um, you might say, brings down some sacred cows, not just back then, but today. It's a passage where we're taken from preaching to meddling, for better or worse. And so this is one of those sermons where I'm going to follow the advice that the rooster gave to the chicken the chicken that decided to lay an egg on a freeway. You may have heard of this story. She insisted on laying the egg on the freeway, and so the rooster said, Well, if you insist, go ahead, but here's some advice. You better lay it on the line and do it in a hurry. <laughs> so that's what we'll be doing today. I'm going to start today with the application uh, to this passage, and, then, and we'll do it through three other passages that will prepare the way for Romans chapter 4. I've titled this message, American idols. And the question is, who are you looking to? Because we're going to see today that the Jews were looking to Abraham rather than to Christ, and that we do the same with our own idols, when now more than ever, we need to be looking to Christ alone and to no other man, whether that be to a new senior pastor or to the next president, Because looking around us, only God is going to get us out of this one. And so we need to be looking to Christ alone for our assurance, for our deliverance, for our security, for our certainty, for our salvation, for our all. In a day when there's so much uncertainty, when, you know, confusion is, is racking our nation, when it's harder than ever to discern the truth, uh, when lies and falsehood and fake news abounds, until like Pilate, you say, what is truth? We need to be centered in the one who is the truth. With all our heart and soul and mind and strength, lest we be scattered like everyone else and fighting like cornered animals. And it begins by bowing to him alone, like we've been doing in our worship. Like Joshua did when the Lord of hosts appeared to him. And remember what Joshua asked him? This is the first of the three passages that lead up to our verses for today. He said, are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, neither. I am a, the commander of the Lord's army. Neither. You'd think that was a no-brainer question. Are you for us or for our enemies? And what that meant back then was, are you for these godless Canaanites who you're calling us to judge? They're so bad. Or are you for Israel? No-brainer, Lord. Neither. Neither. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down. Here I am humbled in your, by your majesty. And he bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Which is what we need to be saying today too. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And you're unholy by comparison to me, so on your knees. The whole lot of you is that way. First and foremost, you need some humility before me, as do we. Especially when the sin statistics are the same for the conservative right as they are from the world all the way from cheating on income tax to rates of abortion. Are you for us or for our enemies? That would be like for us to say, and this is no exaggeration, are you for Trump or for Biden? Are you a Democrat or a Republican? And for the Lord to say, neither. You need to be for me first. You think you're all right and they're all wrong? You're so self-righteous when mankind is all the same, like we've been seeing in Romans 1 to 3. It's level ground at the foot of the cross, and you're all unholy. There is none righteous, no, not one. And you all need to be flat on your face before a holy God. And if you don't get it right, you've already lost the battle. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy And then it says, Joshua (laughs) did so. And he won the victory at Jericho only after he worshiped God only. Are we getting it right today? Are we all right on the Christian right? In a day when everyone thinks they've got a corner on the truth with such, you know, God-like certainty, we need the wisdom of Augur, the son of Jaketh, the oracle, as it says at the end of Proverbs. This is the second passage that leads up to our verses for today. They called him the oracle because everyone thought he was the wisest man, uh, extremely wise man, so much so that Solomon gave him a place in Proverbs. But here's what he said about his wisdom. Solomon ends the book of Proverbs with this because it's the bottom line of wisdom, and that is the humility that comes from the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, as he said in Proverbs 1.7, when we're flat on our face, worshiping him alone and no other man. Here's what Joshua is feeling like at the feet of the commander of the Lord's army. It's the opposite of the, the prideful certainty that we on the right are all right. The words of Augur, son of Jakath, the oracle. Proverbs 30, verse 1. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding even of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I the knowledge of the Holy One. Next to him, I'm nothing. I know nothing. You mean to say Augur, the son of Jakath, the oracle, is stupid? (laughs) Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. And what is the knowledge of the Holy One like? Well, Augur goes on to tell us by asking if we can do what God does in his wisdom. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth and all that's in it? You think you're wise? Someone said, we know the extent of our knowledge, but not of our ignorance. That's what he's saying. And then he concludes, every word of God proves true, said Augur, unlike my words. I'm old enough to know how many convictions I've had that have proven to be wrong. He is a shield to those, he concludes, who take refuge in him, in him alone, and no other pastor or president he was awed by the holy one alone and like joshua he uh, auger did so he lived in a posture of repentance before the holy one of israel which leads to the third passage that leads up to our verses for today when Joshua fell at the feet of the Lord of hosts, here's what he learned at the feet of the Lord of hosts, and then what he learned at the Battle of Jericho. Psalm 33:16. 16, a king is not saved by his mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, as is a president. Nor does it deliver anyone by his great strength, contrary to what you see. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him alone. Like Joshua, when he did so, when he fell on his face and pledged his allegiance to the Lord alone, and only then did he win the battle. It's so easy to give lip service to the Lord when, in fact, we're really trusting in kings and presidents and pastors. when in fact it runs through our own hearts. It's so easy to think that the line between good and evil falls between political parties and platforms when in fact the line between good and evil runs through our hearts. And so like Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in another day when things were very complicated, just like today, the day of Hitler, do what you think is right and then repent as you do. Cast your vote, vote your conscience. We got to do that, but repent as you do. On your face before God only. Reading on, For behold behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. This is later on in Psalm 33 to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you alone. Which is the whole goal of Romans chapter four. Some trust in chariots, it says, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. For our assurance, for our deliverance, for our security, for our certainty, for our salvation, for our all. We've seen so far in Romans 1 and 2 that man's moral state is that of universal wickedness, otherwise known as total depravity. We're on level ground with the rest of humanity before the cross of Calvary, all of us. And so the fundamental stance of the Christian, whether in politics or elsewhere, under it all should be a posture of repentance. And then in Romans 3, we saw God's you know, stroke of genius in light of our universal wickedness, his master stroke, and that is faith righteousness. First, we saw faith righteousness explained. That was Romans three. We saw that you can become righteous in God's eyes only if you truly repent of who you are and of what you've done and simply accept who he is and what he's done through an amazing love that justifies mercy and that nullifies our pride so it can get in and that, as we saw, amplifies grace to the whole human race. That's faith righteousness explained, that nobody's good except by faith that all good comes from God, to whom alone we look for our salvation and all the rest. Today, though, in chapter 4, we move from faith righteousness explained to really faith righteousness uh, illustrated. That is, what does it look like in practice? Well, it looks like placing your faith in the right place, and in particular, in the right person. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse one. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now, Paul brings up Abraham because he knew that many Jews would never accept this doctrine of justification by faith without uh, Abraham's permission, you might say. No matter how well he proved it from the scriptures, they wouldn't budge an inch if he couldn't show them that Abraham would have approved because this man was their idol, and you can't understand this chapter without understanding this idolatry that stands behind it. On one level, Paul's illustrating faith righteousness by building up Abraham as a great uh, man of faith, as we're going to see next time, but this time he does it by first tearing him down as a great idol and what an idol he was as we look for a minute at the background behind this passage that explains what Paul's doing and before the pharisees uh, it's like John the Baptist said to the pharisees you brood of vipers Matthew 3:8 who warned you to flee from the wrath to come therefore bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance and uh, before the pharisees could say anything he knew what they were thinking and so he said do you suppose that you can say to yourselves we have abraham as our father That is, they were thinking, we don't need to repent. We're a cut above. We're sons of Abraham. But he he had come between them and God, so much so that they had turned from God and they were on a highway to hell, which is why John went on to say he will burn the chaff, which is you Pharisees, with unquenchable fire. Abraham was a real problem. And then Christ showed up. And at one point, he was talking to them about their slavery to sin. And he said, you shall know the truth, famous verse, and the truth shall set you free, John 8, 32. But they answered him, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we shall become free? To which Christ said, I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. It's the devil's lure that's behind so many idols. Even the godliest of men, Abraham, can take you far from God if they're taking his place in your heart. And just like the Pharisees, it's so subtle that we don't often even know what's happening. Just like today, we'll see in a bit. So he begins by saying, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather in the faith, according to the flesh, has found If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God. He's saying, before you, maybe, he has something to boast about. In your eyes, he may have had that, but not before God. Paul said this because they did think that he had something to boast about. They thought that there was a whole lot in Abraham that was good apart from God, when nobody's good except by faith that all good comes from God. In fact, here's what they were saying about Abraham at the same time Paul was writing Romans. This is from a commentary on the Torah. Abraham, our forefather, had performed the whole law before it was given and and was therefore a righteous one not needing repentance. Another of Paul's fellow Pharisees had written this. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. Listen to a prayer of a scribe whose name was Manasseh. Thou, therefore, O Lord, hast not appointed repentance unto Abraham who sinned not against thee. Was this the case? Moving on to verse 3. four. what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him as righteousness he's saying even abraham was reckoned as righteous not because of any goodness he had in and of himself but only because he believed god and that was reckoned as righteousness verse four now to the one who works his wage is not credited as a favor but what is due they were saying that it was his due that god owed him something For his good works. Paul was saying that Abraham had done nothing to deserve anything, and so God didn't owe him a thing. And then Paul drives it home in verse 5 But to the one who does not work, but believes him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Far from being perfect in all his deeds, Paul's saying that Abraham was ungodly, an ungodly man who looked to God to justify him in true repentance. And that's not the half of it. Verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven. And whose sins have been covered. What that means is, in and of himself, apart from God, the great patriarch Abraham was a lawless man whose lawless deeds had been forgiven, whose sins, plural, have been covered. He was a man of many sins. And that's not the half of it. Verse 8, blessed is the man whose sin, singular, the Lord will not take into account. That is, he was a man of many sins, plural, because he was a man of sin, singular. He was sinful by nature, yet he enjoyed, just like we can, God's unmerited, undeserved, unbelievable blessing by truly repenting as a lifestyle and simply accepting. And then in verses 9 to 12, we don't have time to go through them all, but basically they tell us that Abraham was uncircumcised at the time God accepted him, just like the Gentile dogs, as they would call them. And just like the Gentiles, he was without the law, with many lawless deeds, as we will see. So Paul appeals to the precedent of a great idol, and he says essentially, your idol is a sinful man, Who needs god's grace as desperately as you do there's only one person you can look to who has no vices to reflect and abraham was not that person perfect in all his deeds (laughs) abraham's vices if you read the scripture carefully were as plain as the nose on his face but the jews couldn't see it and you know or, or they didn't take it into account just like happens with our idols And you know what happened as a result? They ended up becoming like their idol, rather than like God, just like happens with us. But before we look at us, let's see how this happened with them. Nothing new under the sun, way back then, how they picked up his vices. Scripture couldn't be more clear. Abraham's greatest virtue uh, was faith. But interestingly, his greatest vice was the exact opposite. Faith was God's power through his weakness his greatest vice was fear it was unbelieving fear how so well remember when he lied to pharaoh about sarah when he said she was his sister not his wife he was afraid he was afraid they would kill him if they knew that he was the husband because she was a beautiful woman they'd want her and they'd want him out of the way so they could have her or so he feared So rather than admitting who she was, rather than owning up like a man to being her husband and standing up for her as her husband and trusting God to protect him, he lied about her to save his life. And then he betrayed her, his own wife. He gave her to Pharaoh to do with as he pleased, saying that she was just his sister. And then he did it again with Abimelech. That is a lawless deed. And the Jews did the same thing. So many other examples. This is just one of them. They they did the same thing with their own Messiah. Just like their idol, their greatest weakness was their fear and their unbelief. Fearful unbelief. And out of that fear, they did something very lawless. Abraham gave Sarah to Pharaoh, and he lied about who she was. And these children of Abraham gave Christ to Caesar to do with as he pleased and he lied about who he they lied about who he was. Why? Well, Abraham was afraid of Pharaoh, the children of Abraham were afraid of Caesar. They were terrified of what King Caesar would do if all the people followed Christ as their true king. That's why they were saying, if we let him go on like this, John 11:48, all men will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That's why when Pilate said, shall I crucify your king, the chief priest answered, we've got no king but Caesar. They were liars driven by fear. Why? Well, a good part of it anyway was that Abraham was the same kind of sinner. He had taken the place of Christ to the point that they had become like their idol rather than like their God. You know, It was with something of a shock that I saw something several years ago. Here's how the rubber meets the road today. It was in a biography of C.S. Lewis. He'd become my idol in so many ways, and I saw that I'd become like him. Very honest biography of Lewis. I, too, had become something of an intellectual snob, like this biographer said Lewis was. I, too, judged people by how eloquently they talked. I, too, loved English literature, truth be told, more than I loved God's Word, just like him. I, too, had kind of a weak view of the inspiration of the Old Testament. And it took took me years to overcome those things once I saw them, even having seen them. And when the bottom fell out of my life, C.S. Lewis was not there to help me. And he sure wasn't strong enough to keep the bottom from falling out of my heart. So is it any coincidence that so many on the Christian right are sounding like Donald Trump and fighting like him? Why is that? I'll tell you why. This is where (laughs) you lay it on the line and do it in a hurry. (laughs) Psalm 115 talks about the idols of the nations, and it says, those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. How has our side done that? In what way uh, it, uh, become like him? Well, in what we say, among many other ways, and how we say it. And we totally forget that the wisdom from above, truth from above, is first pure, James 3 17, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, and full of mercy. Who among you is wise and understanding, pontificating about the truth? Let him show he's truly wise by his good behavior through his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But the opposite of this is what we're seeing. We're seeing how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire, James says. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and the entire country. It sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. It's from the pit of hell when you say it in the wrong way. So beware. And it starts at the top, or at least it's intensified from the top and it's reflected from the grassroots up. For those who make them their idols will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. And then it says, Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So, having laid it on the line, it's time to hurry away to a safer distance. Same thing happened with George Bush. The Time magazine magazine photographer Christopher Morris did a superbly moving, a a very insightful photo essay of Bush after 9-11. He wasn't in the slightest an enemy of Bush. He admired the man greatly. But here's what he said. September 11th happened and we traveled with him across the country and I saw the cult of personality that was building up around George W. Bush. It's something I had seen in other countries, but it was... Initially, quite shocking shocking to see it in America. We're in an age of the cult of the personality. Here's how one blogger responded to this article, who was also, by the way, a Bush supporter. We remember being ravished by Bush's mission-accomplished photo op aboard the USS Abraham Lincoln. Was our infatuation of Bush of the same kind as the swooning behavior of the Obama maniacs today? Is there any difference between the two sides? He asks. Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither. I would submit to you that there's little difference between the two sides in some of the deepest ways, anyway, because too, all too often we're no different than the Jews were with Abraham. I was so certain. Back then, that it was right to invade Iraq, and proof positive that we were right was that mission-accomplished banner behind Bush as he gave the victory speech on the USS Abraham Lincoln on May 1st of 2003. And then it became, it was over, right? Well, then it became a quagmire. Just like Afghanistan. And now we're voting for Donald Trump because he wants to get us out of the quagmires that we asked for. Who can claim to have wisdom in these areas, at least some of them, with utter certainty? Long before that, I was so certain that, (laughs) this is an even safer distance, and it's on the Democratic side, so I'm really safe. I was so certain that Bill Clinton had disqualified himself from being president because of the Monica Lewinsky affair. Remember that? It was a no-brainer. You were either for us or for them. I thought I had the answer, as did the whole conservative right, that no man who's that kind of adulterer is fit to be president ever. He deserved to be impeached. And then look who we voted for 18 years later, four years ago, and we had all sorts of arguments from the Bible why it's okay now for an adulterer to be president. I'm not saying he shouldn't be president, but I am saying that we need to become a little wiser, like Augur, with a little more humility in our positions, because it's stinking to high heaven, to a watching world, and because of us, his name is being blasphemed among the Gentiles, just like it says in Romans 2. We need to be a little wiser like Augur with a little more humility in our positions if we want to be on God's side. I hope we can say something a little bit at least more like surely I am too stupid to be a man. Culmination of Solomon's wisdom in the book of Proverbs. He put it at the very end. I have not the understanding even of a man. I have not learned wisdom nor I have the knowledge of the Holy One whose word alone is true. So, question, who who is it for you? We've probably all got them. Who was it? Ronald Reagan? I love that man. But did we do the same with him? George Bush, Barack Obama? We've got some closet Democrats in our congregation. (laughs) Forbid it, Lord, we do. And they are welcome. Kelly Clarkson? Taylor Swift, C.S. Lewis, Charles Stanley, John MacArthur, Donald Trump, some football hero. Is your heart crowded with football stars? Is that what you think about all the time? Who fills your cup? Which (laughs) title of the message? American Idols. Paul cites the president of a great idol to convince the Jews of a great doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith, by faith in God alone, to convince them to look to God alone for everything, starting with their salvation. Because Paul knew something. He knew they'd never get close to God as long as, you know, some celebrity was standing in his way, some politician. There's only room in your heart for one master, Christ said, one savior. You cannot serve two masters. And there's none who compares with him. Which is what we'll see next time when we'll turn from the object of the Pharisees' faith to the object of Abraham's faith, who looked to God alone for his assurance, for his deliverance, for his security, for his certainty, for his salvation. And when he did, as we'll see, the man of fear became a man of faith. God's power was perfected in his weakness. He became a man of faith against impossible odds, just like we can against what feel like impossible odds that are all around us, no matter what's happening around us. So as we close Isn't that just what we need to these days to look to God alone like never before? To prove that in God we really do trust and that it's not just this motto. Without it, the curse comes. For thus says the Lord, two other passages to end it with. Jeremiah 17.5, cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart therefore turns away from the Lord. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant, which is kind of what's happening in places in our country. But blessed is the man who trusts in In the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its root by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in year of drought. Though the drought is all around us. Next week, actually in two weeks, I'll be away next week. In two weeks, we'll see who Abraham was looking to. And how we can, too, from a posture of repentance, we can lift our eyes to the mountains. Psalm 121.1, from where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from evil if you look to him. He will keep your soul. The Lord will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Well, as we bow in silent prayer now and as the worship leaders come forward, what is it for you? What fills your heart other than God? Who are you looking to for help? Who are you looking to, truth be told? Who have you become like? Maybe you need a little more humility in your certainty. Maybe a little more gentleness in your great pronouncements. A little more mercy in your judgments. Whatever it is, just repent of it and ask God to be your all in all. Do business with him for just a minute or so as the spirit leads. Father, I pray that having repented as a body, of having emptied our hearts before you, that you would now fill us as a body and that we could be the answer to what ails our nation by what we say, what we do, how we say it, how we do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.